We want to talk about faith. We want to talk about um, politics. We want to talk about race. We want to talk about pop culture. Literally, everything, 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 everything is up for discussion, and that's what French culture is about. About, about, about. What's going on, world? You are tuned in to episode 42 of Brunch Culture. As always, I'm your boy, Randall Keith, and I'm joined by my homegirl, Miss Lisa Victoria. What's up, world? I said I was right. going to say brunch culture, but I re-listened to the last episode, and I was like, man, I really sounded really lame, so I, I'm not <laughs> going to do that. So, you know, disregard me saying I was going to start doing that. The people, I think some of the people like brunch culture. Ain't this what you do? No, yeah, it was just, it was too much. I wanted to tone it back down. I want to bring it back down to real life, because that's, that's not my day-to-day, so I wanted that's to not. be authentic to who I was. <laughs> good good stuff well how about you be authentic and dive into this weekend review hit us <laughs> up with that <laughs> well this week um german wings flight 9525 was reprogrammed by someone in the cockpit to change the plane's altitude from 38,000 feet to 100 feet according to flight trader flight radar 24 a website that tracks aviation data um yeah Apparently, we we were notified that the, a plane crashed, and the assumption was engine failure or something um, went wrong with the plane. However, we later discovered that the co-pilot decided to take upon himself to um, take the plane down. Um, the pilot went to the restroom for a restroom break, and while he was on his re- restroom break um the co-pilot 27 year old german national andreas lubitz apparently decided to destroy the aircraft and he locked the doors and the pilot was not able to get in and he took the plane down and it was so sad you could hear the screams um, from people once they knew like we're going down yeah and i just i was like See, we, I really, I'm scared, y'all, I'm scared of flying. I fly, but I don't like it. I want somebody to knock me out. Like, well, I'm, I want to take medicine and just be asleep. Because I don't understand. I know this sounds foolish. I don't understand how the plane's staying up in the air. They done told me at the amount of speed it's going. And, you know, I don't, I don't understand that. That's why I'm in seminary. I just, I, I study something else. That's not your study, Yeah, I don't say aviation. <laughs> but yeah, I w- I'm scared. Like when turbulence, I my my school was in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, y'all let that marinate, the Lynchburg. But anyway, um, that's another discussion. But the the little you take a flight when I come from Florida to go to when I would come home from, to Florida to visit, I would have to take a flight to Charlotte, and then take a a little small crop duster type plane to Lynchburg. So it got the little propellers on it. Oh no, propellers. Yeah. So the whole time I'm just like God, I just want to live. And then every time turbulence, the people next to me would be looking at me crazy. 
because I almost feel like I'm hyperventilating. I'm about because I feel like each time we shake in the air, we got these little propeller planes. We about to die. Yeah, I'm straight screaming. I'm falling out. I'm calling for all kinds of help and people. Yeah, I just that's that's yeah, my. I can't mind. ride with you on a plane because we'll be we'll be them passed out together. I'm looking. I'm tearing up everything in the process. Tell me, I look at. I look at the old white people because I feel like they know when we about to go down or not because they've traveled a lot. So, <laughs> so if it start, if 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 turbulence, any kind of turbulence to me, it seems like it's death, immediate. But if they calm and they still reading their book, I say, okay, I know I should calm down. But if they looking crazy, then I know I get scared because they, yeah, that's my logic. Don't judge me for how I process. <laughs> Or who I look to, to to be my insurance. That's a whole different story. <laughs> but in light of this situation, I definitely think that you know it, it does raises it, it raises like red flags and all. I have to fly twice next week, and I'm kind of nervous. Not because I think the plane. I don't understand how the plane flies in the air. I no just judge, think, I felt like it, that was judgment. No, right? no judgment. I'm just saying, like I get how the plane is in the air. I understand that process. So it's more so the people that's behind how, the plane, like was, in this situation. How is it standing there? That's a whole other. Like we'll just it's a <laughs> we'll deal with that. That's a whole other show in itself. Like okay, I want we're gonna bring on yeah, we're gonna bring on an aviation expert and we're gonna talk about. How planes stay in the air. So Lisa can have peace as she tries. So Lisa, the next flight she get on, I got a she can be at peace. This month, and I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but as we said, though, definitely, I mean, it raises flags, but we we want to keep those people in our prayers and our hearts and our minds, and just considering because they, I think it was something like 150 or 155 people that passed away. Um, with that flight crash and is to get more information as we get more information and we realize that it was at the hands of the co-pilot he basically orchestrated like when we get on planes we put our lives in the hands of the pilot and the co-pilot so for the the co-pilot to make the decision to end all of those people people's lives is sad it's unfortunate and as we get more information about it you know it's just kind of makes you realize that we have to do more with mental illness. I've heard things that say that he was dealing with some like uh, secret mental, uh, he had been secretly uh, deemed that his doctor, not secretly, but his doctor had deemed him unfit to work. Uh, so knowing that he was protected and that being his health information and that information not being related to his place, place, place of employment, like it's just, it's a sad situation. So yeah, definitely prayers go out to them. Um, and I just, that's crazy. It gets crazier and crazier as we get more information. So in other news, um, this is actually something that didn't happen this week. Uh, I watched the video this week and it's the video of Dame Dash people. I saw clips of it on Facebook and on Instagram about him talking about people being bosses and this interview that he did with the breakfast club and Dame Dash saying, you need to be a boss. You know, you need to make your own money. And everybody was posting these videos and 
it just showed a clip of it, but all these people were saying, like, change your mind and change your concept, stop working for the man and get out and get your own, flip your own, make your own money. Basically, if you're working from somebody, for somebody, you ain't going nowhere. It's all about being an entrepreneur and yada, 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 her, 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 her. Great stuff, right? So I think if you watch a clip of it, which maybe you can kind of miss what was going on and miss the issues that was that were happening with Dame Dash's arguments. I'm going to start off with saying that I think that entrepreneurship is the way to go. Um, I think it's an incredible thing. I think that if you have an entrepreneurial mind, I think that if you are creative, if you can be creative and employ a business aspect or get a business partner and pursue, pursue something and make, you know, your own way and be your own boss, quote unquote, if you will, by all means do it. But I take some issues with some things that Dame Dash said, and one of the most obvious issues is you're, basi you're basically ishing on people that have day-to-day -day jobs, which are going to be your customers. So one of the biggest flaws in everything he said was like, you know, you're not a man if you got a boss, if you work for somebody else, you're not a man, you're not a man, but if you're going to have a business, you're going to have to have employees. So if you are telling everybody that they need to have their own and not be employed by anybody, well, sir, you're not going to have any employees. And then the other thing is just this whole notion of what it means to be a man, right? I think that that kind of, this, uh, I just get frustrated when people start doing, going into this whole this this mean you ain't a man. You ain't a man. Dame Dash said you're not a man if you call another man your boss. If another man is writing, cutting you a check, then you're not a man. Well, in order for you to have a business and in order for you to make money, someone has to take the money from their pocket or their hand and give it to you which in turn would mean that person is your boss. He goes on to say that like the cab driver was his boss, but it's a temporary boss because he's given the cab, cab driver the the money. He's the cab driver's boss, excuse me, temporarily because he's given the, the cab driver money for that moment. But it's just crazy because it's like this argument that he's built up and everybody's rallying behind it like, oh, yeah, he's so right. He's so right. What the man is saying is stupid. He's saying take your own money and take take your money, build the money up and then do something else with it. Well, where do we get that money from? The the Charlemagne kept saying he kept trying to say, like, well, it's I think it's OK to have a job. I think it's great to have other investments and to have multiple streams of revenue. You I mean, you have to have it. But. I don't think you can basically say that people suck or nothing if they have a job. That's actually an honorable position. Like you have a, a job. That's a great thing. Like let's applaud people to, for doing that. He's like, no, 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 no. If you got a job, if another man is cutting your check, you, you ain't a man, you ain't a man, you ain't this. Basically like trying to make people feel bad. But the whole idea of, business and how it works is people take their money that they work for you go and you work for it out of yourself or you work for somebody else you get your money and then you spend it on something that you want so dame dash is pretty much saying people hey like if you don't don't take your money don't come to my business because you think you're not a boss like it just the whole idea just didn't make sense he's not pointing out the fact that like you got to get the money from somewhere money's just not like growing on trees a lot of us don't grow up with this, 
huge sum of money. So we just can't take the money and flip it to our own business. So that and it's he's just the whole interview was just crazy. He was just doing a lot of hooting and hollering, and it just hit. And I'm like, yo, I get what you're saying. I get theoretically what you what you're trying to do. You're trying to change people's mindsets of going to work a nine to five and that being the only thing that you do for the rest of your life. Like you have no, no goals or ambitions to own anything. And ownership does give you power, even if just over that. So I get that, but going to buy going about it by saying that somebody's not a man, that's crazy. Saying that a person is defined, like what defines your manhood is if you have a job or not. That's one of the problems that we have, because you got all these dudes around here talk about, oh, you know, I make my own money. I got my own money. I'm my own business. But being a man has to do with like you have responsibility. You're taking responsibility. You're taking care of the responsibilities that you create via kids. You're taking care of your family, which are responsibilities that you inherit. Um, you're building uh, you're building something, uh, a, a legacy for yourself, for your family, for other people. You know, you're, you're being respectful. You're being integrous. Like there are a number of things that make up a man. Yeah, and I more just about hate character. Than yeah. And he I hate when people take this idea that like, oh, your position, how you act is what makes you a man. He said another thing. He was like, if you're on social media, what man say social media? A real man can't even say the word social media. No man listens to social media. Dude, if you are a businessman and you're not connecting to people on social media, it was so contradictory because he would say that and then he would talk about how the internet is free and the internet has created like this business this business zone in a direct-to-consumer uh, marketplace for small businesses and for the business owners. But then he's saying, if you use social media, then you're not a man. What? <laughs> like, the whole idea, if you listen to social media, then you're not a man. Real men don't listen to social media. Well, bruh, if you put your business on social media or the internet and I go to listen to, am I not supposed to listen to your business or your advertisement on social media? Cause it's on social media. Am I not supposed to talk about it because it's on social media? Like that's, it's just, it's stupid. And I think you have small, ignorant, pe small minded, ignorant people that will take that and be like, Oh, well, I want to be a man. Cause Dame Dash say, I got to be a man. So I ain't going to be on there. Dame Dash is irrelevant. I just want to put that out there because I just was like, what? But then Twitter struck back, as they always do, with um, this week. The interview happened, didn't happen this week, but Twitter went, um, somebody um, put out tweet like Dame Dash, and it became the leading trending topic. And, and they are, they have some stuff. Real men don't wear Nikes. Why would I let another man put me in check? I'm from Harlem. <laughs> this one said um how you gonna read the bible that's another man's gossip matthew mark luke john are all chatty patties <laughs> like dame dash um where's the one real men don't take planes how you gonna let another man lift you to the sky we from harlem <laughs> we grow wings and get fly Right. It's just, and I'm so glad. I'm honestly so glad. I think black Twitter is an incredible thing, right? Because black Twitter uses these these crazy behind instances and stories and they just make fun of it. And it points out how 
bizarre it is and how much sense it doesn't make. Like, he kept boasting about, you know, I'm a real man and in Harlem we do this and we don't do that. So nobody in Harlem has a job. Nobody so he didn't in Harlem. Rockaway at any point to produce clothes. Like, well, he, I mean, that that's a part of what he founded. Like, he's a part of the whole, like, Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockwell, but I'm saying they, they had to partner with somebody. But he's but he's saying that that's a partnership. Like his argument is that's a partnership. That's different. Like y'all coming together to make money. That's not one somebody cutting you a check. They asked him about Def Jam, right? So he was like, you know, at Def Jam, they was like they cut you a check. No, we didn't cut me a check. I earned it. It was based off a formula. Well, what? bro, no, at the end of, yeah, at the end of the day, like I have a performance review. Like I have to meet certain metrics i think everybody does you have to be performing or producing something whatever it is in order to get it just again the whole logic you think he high you think he was high i just don't feel like he was in his right mind i know i feel like he was in his right mind i think he's just his right mind is not again i'm not i don't think the guy is stupid i think he he's on to something and trying to push people because he one thing he kept saying was you got to change your mindset right and i think it's one of those things where he gets something that's good but the way that he displays it or goes about trying to get everybody to follow him is not that's not like it just don't make complete sense but this idea of you got to focus on owning things and having ownership i completely understand ownership because angela Yee asked him she ended up saying like yo so what about people doing internships or apprenticeships like and if you don't know what it is if you want to be in radio you don't know what it is to be in radio you want to own your own radio station are you how do you feel about people doing an apprenticeship or an internship to figure out the ins and out? He was like, Oh, I support that. Wait, what? <laughs> so you can do something if it's for free to learn it, but if you get paid and you're trying to learn it, like that's not it just again, it was stupid. It didn't make no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Well, you know, that's another Dame Dash made himself relevant for fifteen minutes. Um, shout out to you, Dame Dash, for taking full advantage of that interview now you are a trending topic god bless america um <laughs> but this, this today we have a, a special guest for you guys we want to talk about um being a black spaces in white spaces and this idea of african americans on ivy league campuses and we've brought in special guest darren jones who has been at three ivy league institutions tell us a little bit about yourself um hi everybody my name is darren lamar jones i am 26 i live in queens new york and i'm currently an associate pastor at the greater allen amy cathedral of new york um i got my bachelor's degree from cornell university i graduated from there in 2010 and then I got my master's in divinity from Union, Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, which is a seminary that is affiliated with Columbia University. And I graduated there with my MDiv in 2013. And then I received a second master's from Princeton Theological Seminary, um, a master's in theology in 2014. All right, Mr. Darren. So, Mr. Darren, you say. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> No, we definitely thank you for your introduction, man. Extremely, extremely impressive resume. Um, 
so let's just dive right into it. Uh, did you always know coming out of the gate that you wanted to pursue your education at Ivy League institutions? Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, I'm from Miami, Florida, born and raised, and I went to um, a technical arts high school and I got a, a certificate in phlebotomy because um, um, college wasn't necessarily something that was in my view. Huh. And when I applied, um, my father really encouraged me to apply to as many schools as possible. So did my mom. Both my father and my mother are really prominent in my life. And they both encouraged me to apply to as many schools as possible. So, you know, they always said apply to really, really hard schools, apply to like, you know, medium schools and apply to safety schools. Um, so I applied to a, a, a plethora in each category because I really wanted to go. And um, I got rejected from, I applied to four Ivy League schools and I got rejected from every single one um, except for Cornell. And when I got accepted to Cornell, um, I really wanted to go to University of Florida because I didn't want to be far from my family and I didn't want to, I was really scared, I was really intimidated. And uh, my father said that, you know, if God has allowed you to get into this university, you should go. And we'll, and we'll support you every, every step of the way. So um, through God's grace, and it really is a miracle I got into Cornell. It really is God's grace. Um, um, I went to Cornell. Okay. Awesome. <clears throat> Good stuff. So you got into Cornell. Um, what was the experience like with you first getting there? I know you, you said you wanted to stay closer to your family. Was that, was it, did you have family members in the area? How was your your movement up to getting into Cornell? Um, it was complete and utter shell shock. It was complete and ultra, utter um, culture shock. Um, so I'm from Miami, Florida. So I had never been around white people. I had been around snow. I had oh. never been around hills. There's all kinds of culture shock. I huh? had never been around wealth. So right. I got to Cornell and there's a bunch of rich white people and snow and hills and um i com i felt completely out of out of place i felt like a, a fish out of water and it, cornell is just really really massive it's a very very huge gorgeous campus it was literally yeah. like into a city um so i was really 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 scared i remember the first day being there my uncle um who's recently passed and my father went, went with me up to the campus and okay. um, I remember feeling really, really scared and really, really out of place and really just wondering, God, how am I going to do this? So, um, yeah, it was really offsetting. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's let's dive into this whole Ivy League experience. And one question I want to ask you, because sometimes we have a lot of people that will say things like black people get opportunities from affirmative action. Um, and affirmative action, and oftentimes, I'm sure you've heard of it, um, oftentimes people look at affirmative action now as a negative thing and something that shouldn't be there and something that we no longer need and everybody's either, if you get something, it's because somebody's trying to, to meet a certain quota, or if you don't get something, it's because, oh, well, they need to have a quota. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel, about, feel like your acceptance into Cornell had anything to do with them trying to meet some sort of quota or standard by you being a, a African-American, I mean, I'm sorry, a Black applicant? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I got to speak with the lady. So I applied to Cornell two weeks late. I finished my application two weeks late. And um, the year that I applied, there were 35,000 applicants and 3,500 spots. So it had about a 10% acceptance rate my year of um, applying. 
And when I got to Cornell, by God's grace, the woman that I spoke to said that the reason why she, ex- I, man, before I got to Cornell, I was really active in my church. I was an associate minister. I started preaching at 15, blah, 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 blah. So when I got to Cornell, the woman that I spoke to that I know was the one that read my application said that I know you applied late, but the reason why we accepted you or I pushed for you to be accepted is because I thought that your Christian background would add something to this to this um, environment. And she said mm. it's verbatim. Um, okay. So when I say like it's God's grace, like I know Cornell is God's grace. But concerning affirmative action, I think that um, I think that I think a couple of things. One, I think that you can s- affirmative action to say that someone got accepted to, to any university because of affirmative action is very very offensive. Um, first and foremost. Second of all, I think that even if someone does get accepted because of some benefit of affirmative action, they definitely are not going to graduate because of affirmative action. So anyone that graduates from um, a PWI, especially an Ivy League school, especially if they are a person of color, especially if they're Black, they have definitely proven that affirmative action was not the determining factor of their acceptance, that they really had the muster and the strength and the courage and the tenacity to graduate. Um, Third of all, I think that white people have historically been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action in American history. Um, and still are. Um, I think the fact that um, women are considered under affirmative action as being a underserved class and white women definitely benefit from affirmative action um, speaks a lot to that point. Second of all, I think that when you consider the fact that um, the the children of alumni, of high donors, um, um, legacy cases um, are very prevalent at PWIs, particularly Ivy League schools, that there also is another stream of of affirmative action that benefits them. Um, and also, if you consider the fact that a lot of people come into Ivy League, not a lot of people, there, 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 is, there are a considerable number of people that come into Ivy League schools because, or PWIs in general because of um, athleticism that is not necessarily academically connected, um, that that might be another, 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 um, another stream of affirmative action for um, majority people as well. Um, and lastly, I definitely think that we need affirmative action. I think that um, that there needs to be special consideration specifically on the basis of race. Um, if there is ever going to be any meaningful um, attempt to reconcile the continuous oppression and the continuous um, antagonism that African-Americans have faced in America from 1619 to the present day. Um, from slavery to Jim Crow, to the Jim, to, um, Jim Crow laws, to, um, the drug war, to mass incarceration, African-Americans have consistently and, and experienced a nonstop stream of oppression in America. And I think there needs to be special consideration of that and consideration of the fact that those factors place us at a disadvantage that no other demographic, even poor whites have to face. So okay. So at what point in time, and this is just me being devil's advocate, I think everything that you said is great and I agree with you wholeheartedly on every front. At what point in time do you or do you think there is a point in time when one can say there needs we need to do away with this idea of we need to help a certain group of people anymore and we're all on the same uh playing field. Do you think that that's something that's attainable or um is- I I, I, I don't think that's attainable in America because America's bedrock is racism um, and the privileging of whites over everyone else. 
Um, I do think that that if it were to exist, it would exist in a time when there are not disparate rates of um, mass incarceration amongst Blacks, when there are not disparate rates of the undereducating of African-Americans, when, when there are no longer disparate rates of housing discrimination, when there are no longer disparate rates of um, health care um, underservice. So I think that when numbers show that African-Americans are not minimized or marginalized in terms of healthcare, education, housing, policing, um, and, and um, post-secondary acceptance, okay, then that would be the first argument for me that we don't longer need affirmative action. But as long as African-Americans across every single determining factor of life chances are underserviced and marginalized, then you can't, you can't create for me a meaningful argument that we don't need affirmative action. Do you feel like that people looked at you different when you came to Cornell because of your race? Well, that's hard. Well, it's, definitely, it's difficult for me to say because I spent my first... I didn't really interact with white people outside of the classroom at Cornell until roughly my third year at Cornell. Um, like, the thing about... The thing about PWIs and Ivy League, Ivy League institutions is that even though they are majority white... They have, I would argue, some of the strongest communities of color that you'll ever find that you'll ever find in any institution, black or white. Because I agree. I agree. If you look at Cornell, if you look at Columbia, if you look at Brown, if you look at Stanford, if you look at other prominent PWIs, they have ridiculously strong communities of color. I can speak specifically for the for the black community, and I can speak specifically for the black communities at Columbia and at um, Cornell. I didn't really I didn't really talk to the black community at Princeton that much, but for, specifically for Columbia and Cornell, which I know very very well, they have very very strong, very very tight knit communities of color, particularly black communities. Um, and those communities provide strength, pr provide understanding, provide support, um, provide um, a sounding board, provide places that allow you anchors um, in these predominantly white spaces where you can be yourself and breathe and exhale. Um, so for me, I at, at Cornell, we had um, Ujima, which was the um, Pan-African um, dorm. We had Africana, which was the Africana Research and Study Center, which is the center at Cornell, which is devoted to the study of um, Pan-African reality. Um, we had Wanawaki Wawari, which is the um, Black Women's Co-op. And we also had, um, at the time, we had the Office of Minority Educational Affairs, which was the office that dealt with minority educational affairs. Um, so those, <laughs> those four things in particular served as strong pillars for me and many of my classmates as we navigate throughout Cornell. And personally, um, my third year, I pledged Alpha. I'm a member of the Alpha chapter of Alpha Bio Fraternity Incorporated. So my fraternity um, later served as a fifth um, pillar for me to really be affirmed and supported in my Blackness while navigating Cornell. With that being said, one of the things that I think that um, we kind of see when we look at Black people from different, from HBCUs, from PWIs, from Ivy League universities, so we have a certain sense of uh, pride about our institution, about our experience. Do you think, when you think about, when you talk about um, the, the, the networks and the support systems that you've had at these Ivy League universities, do you think to any degree that you guys have a um, a sense of kind of privilege or a sense uh, that you 
are a little more better off, a little more well-rounded than someone that has gone to an HBCU or to a standard PWI as opposed to an Ivy League university? I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself, but um, I definitely feel that I've been, I've, I've gained um, privileges from going to Cornell that some of, some of my um, brothers and sisters that went to HBCUs may not have um, gotten. And I think particularly when you think of education, um, education is kind of about names. And I think that Cornell, Columbia, Princeton, those names carry an international weight that um, some HBCUs might not carry. Um, I know that whenever I enter into a room and I say I went to Cornell, Columbia, and Princeton, that automatically doors open for me. And that's hands down. Um, I know that um, many of my classmates um, many of my mentors at Cornell, older students, and many of those that have followed after me um, have have mentioned the same, that when they are a black face in a room and they, they mention Cornell, they mention Columbia, they miss, mention um, Princeton or wherever, that just like things are just easy, um, that there is an automatic assumption of your intelligence, an automatic assumption of your ability, especially at Cornell, um, because Col Columbia, like, people at Columbia are ridiculously smart. Like, they think outside of the box. Like, they are a, that people at Columbia can define is. Like, what does is mean? Like, they're just ridiculously smart. Like, they're super duper smart, and they think outside of the box, and they really just are just geniuses. But no one on earth fights harder than someone that went to Cornell. Like, no one fights harder than a Cornelian. Like, Cornelians will fight until hell freezes over, and then we will fight on the ice. Like no one fights harder than us, and and I think that's known um, in the professional in the professional realm. Whether you're talking about hospitality or engineering or um, or or medicine or um, business, wherever you go, I think that there is kind of like a understanding. There is kind of a assumption that if somebody graduated from Cornell, that they're good. Um, and also just 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 um the fact that our networks are crazy and HBCUs have phenomenal networks. Like people, like people for like, particularly Morehouse, like Morehouse men hold other Morehouse men down. Like it's like insane. Like their network is crazy. Um, even specifically for me being in, um, in the theological church arena, like their network is insane. Their network is crazy and it's undeniable. Um, and I really respect that network, and I really respect that they really hold each other down, like and like an unparalleled network. Um, but um, my network is—I I don't have the words. Like I—I I literally have the the cell phone numbers of three diplomats, um, two international lawyers, um, fourteen doctors. Um, three engineers, one Marine Corps officer, and the majority of those are just in my chapter, not even thinking about people outside of Alpha. So it's kind of like, and they're all like phenomenally amazing, and they're all phenomenally amazing and really successful in their various fields, um, and really down to earth, and also majority of which are very, very much so committed to the struggle of African Americans, and, and really and committed to seeing how they can use their various skills to do so. So I definitely want to say, to get back to the question, I definitely want to say that 
everyone thinks that because they went to a PWI or an Ivy League, they had more connections or more opportunities than um, their counterparts that went to HBCUs. But I think that in terms of brand recognition and name recognition, definitely. Gotcha. So how does that how does that translate into and, and what I what I'm getting at is with those networks, with those connections, with knowing those people, with understanding the position that you have being being having attended an Ivy League university and being connected to those people. How does that translate to your interaction with everyday black folks, a black person that has gone to. And I won't even use an HBCU because I feel like that's a that's a whole different conversation in itself. Someone that's just gone to a typical uh, PWI and someone that may not be college educated as well. How do you do you feel like or are there ways that you can see that that changes your understanding of self compared to those people? Um, Not at all. And I think I have I think I have a really unique um, perspective of this being a minister. I mean, as a minister. Um, and an associate pastor in Jamaica, Queens. Um, I mean, the majority of my of my of the people that I serve have not gone to college. Um, the majority of the people that I have that I serve um, have most definitely haven't gone to Ivy League schools or PWIs. And um, it causes me to. In my interactions with anyone, regardless, I don't necessarily think about where they went to school. Um, off, off jump anyway. I really look at who they are as a person and look at who they are um, in terms of like their talents, their giftings, their skill sets, and their interests, and and most of all their character and their integrity. I mean, I for me, um, above everything else, character, integrity, and authenticity are most important. I think I could care less about your academic pedigree, um, particularly as it pertains to ministry and as it pertains to people that I minister to or speak to. Um, so I think that whenever I'm interacting with any Black person or any person in general, regardless of color, my my interest lies primarily in their character and their integrity um, and their authenticity and their sense of self more so than their pedigree or their academic background. That's off rip. And when I'm interacting with people, my who I am and where I've been and what I've experienced more so adds to that interaction. But it doesn't it doesn't command it by any means. Got you. So you're saying that the fact that you you have this education, but the fact that on the day on a day to day basis, you're interacting with um, African-Americans who are. Are in engulfed in um the day-to-day struggle of disparity helps you kind of balance it out um i think i think what i'm saying is that i i bring all of who i am to every interaction Mm -hmm. and and i i would hope and I really enjoy it when whoever I'm interacting with in whatever capacity, whether it's as a friend, as a brother, as a minister, whatever, brings all of who they are. Gotcha. And and those two holes interact and um, relate. Got gotcha. you. So, I don't know if that makes sense. That might have been like a, a, a fourth and cookie answer, but that's the best way I can articulate it. So you're just saying that the, your your degree is just one aspect of you. 
Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. I got Perfect. You. Thank you. Does that answer your question, Randall? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, Darren, is there anything else you want to share about your experiences? Um, I would say that Cornell was probably I think that Cornell was like the hardest experience of my entire life. I don't I think that um I cried more and was in despair and on the on the the, the floor of my dorm room praying and all that kind of stuff more than any other experience in my entire life. Um it was really, 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 really hard. But I think that the great thing about it is, one, I made friends that I know will last for the rest of my life. And I think that that's something that anyone can say for any college experience. And I think that the most important thing about college after the degree is who you leave with in terms of your friends. But another thing that I say that I can say that I really, really love and am really appreciative to Cornell for is really knowing that there is nothing that I can't do that God has called me to do. Um, and I think that that level of confidence and that level of assurance in my ability and in my destiny to accomplish and to overcome whatever I'm tasked to do, I I know that I personally would not have been able to get that any, at any other place but Cornell. Um, and I know that every other person that I graduated with from Cornell has the exact same understanding about their ability. They know, we all know that there's nothing that we cannot do that we are called to do. And I think that being surrounded by those people with such a high level of assurance and confidence in their ability is unparalleled. And I really thank God for that. And I really am appreciative to Cornell for, for, for providing me with that, with that environment to experience that. Well, we thank you for being a guest on the show on Brunch Culture. We'll have to have you back again. I'd love to be back. I mean, I had a really great time. Thank you so much for um, allowing me to do this. I really um, enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And now it's time for our random topic. So each week, we find the most bizarre stuff for y'all. It's hard sometimes, but we find it. And I just want y'all to know that this probably is the most disgusting thing yet. Accused bank robber says Virgin Mary told him to eat his feces and he did it in court see people just <laughs> i gotta read i gotta read it's from huff post y'all before before if you are eating something if you snacking on something in your car just stop it just take it out just put it to the side pause this finish eating it and then listen all right go ahead <laughs> A California man accused of robbing a bank apparently decided he was done taking crap from prosecutors. So he decided to take matters into his own hands and eat some instead. Albert Gilbertson pleaded not guilty by reason of his sanity for allegedly robbing a St. Louis bank in um, 2013. Police said during the robbery, 40-year-old Gilbertson disguised himself by wearing a hat and a pink child's backpack. Uh, that's something's wrong right there. Before slipping <laughs> a note to the bank tellers demanding cash, according to the Cal Coast News, he allegedly said it was the Virgin Mary who suggested this, did this, the disguise. Despite previously poor advice, Gilbertson listened to the Virgin Mary again. She done led him astray <laughs> twice <laughs> when she told him to eat his own feces while on the witness stand. The suspect allegedly reached his hands into his pants, removed his own waist, and began eating the cheeky snacks. 
In the chaos that followed, Judge Donald Umhofer called for a recess, obviously. When the trial later resumed, mental health expert testified he saw Gilbertson hitting himself to get rid of the voices in his head. Online records show Gilbertson was previously convicted for sexual assault. This trial is ongoing. He, it hasn't, um, he hasn't been convicted yet. Uh, but I think it's safe to say the insanity plea is probably a shoe-in. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't want to make light of mental illness. That is a real thing. But listen, if I was in that courtroom, y'all, I wouldn't have been able to continue. The minute he told me that the Virgin Mary told him to do something, I probably would have been floored. I would have. See, I yeah. would have been floored at that. I would have been floored at that him reaching into his pants, because that means you already used the bathroom on yourself, first of all, and then you went and went and grabbed it and put it in your mouth. Oh my I God. just, I Everybody just want to understand. I just want to understand though, like why did the Virgin Mary have to do it? Like out of everybody. Anybody, it could have been. It could have been anybody. The Virgin Mary, like well, you know, she got up because it's around Easter time. Um, <laughs> it's around Easter time, so that kind of go. You know, that kind of go. Oh, so oh, I okay, I okay. You know how Jesus? I I don't know. I I was trying to. <laughs> I was trying to make it a tie. I was trying to tie it in, but I couldn't. I couldn't get it there. Um, yeah. But it is around Easter, so I guess I'm assuming that's where it came from. He was some maybe somebody. He had gone to like an event, and maybe they were talking about the birth of Christ. And <laughs> could you imagine that judge face? Because you know the judge right next to the witness stand. Yeah. I'd have just been. I I would have just got up. You know what? I'm I'm this. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna start basket weaving. I'm just gonna start a whole new profession. <laughs> just basket weaving. Just the court reporter. What did she do? She ate his own feces. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Like you know, she got, she got to document the whole thing. And you know they don't have like the full keyboard. They got them little note. Them little. Uh, it's like shorthand type thing so yeah. I wonder if there's a shorthand for that like how you she need an emoji tab for that <laughs> she need an emoji tab that would have really helped cause I think that's that's cause for emojis it's just like what in the world <laughs> if I was the lawyer I would have just I'd be like I can't do this cause he probably got a public defender I would have just I said my this is not what I learned in law school <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this yeah, I quit. I'm just going. I'm telling you, I'm about to start weaving some baskets. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to what Dame Dash said, and I'm gonna take my money from somewhere. I don't, I, y'all, cause y'all can't pay me, cause y'all don't want y'all to be my boss. And I'm gonna go, <laughs> and I'm gonna find some, you know, some, some. I'm gonna go outside on the trees, and I'm gonna get some sticks together, some bamboo, and I'm gonna start making baskets. I'm gonna make my own business. That's what I'm gonna do, cause you know what, this ain't right. Yeah, this is not right. <laughs> So, <laughs> it's time for our quote of the week. This week's quote comes from Darius Daniels. It says, it's hard for somebody to tell you you're wrong when you feel like you're winning. And that just speaks to the fact that sometimes when we're a, when we're succeeding in the things we want to succeed in, when people come into our lives and say, hey, there's, there's a problem here um, you need to correct, sometimes the pride in us won't receive it because we're like, well, I'm succeeding. So 
we're pragmatists in a sense. So we say, okay, so this is working for me. I don't need to alter anything. And so as young professionals, that's really prevalent in us sometimes pride and we kind of feel ourselves a little bit and we can't take critiques. But in order to get better, in order to thrive over a long period of time, you need to be able to accept criticism and alter things so your character can um, excel. Truth, truth, truth. My my colleague and I were actually talking about that today. We were talking about wanting more criticism on our job, feeling like, you know, people keep telling us like, oh, you're doing a great job. This is good. You know, keep doing what you're doing. But I'm like, I got to be doing something wrong, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm there's something that I can improve upon. And so we kind of like made this personal pact with each other. Like, hey, if you see me doing something wrong, just like call me out at least so I can get, because I, I want to be, I, I need to keep getting better. There's no such thing for me as just, oh, I've reached the place where I'm just, I have it all together. Like, nah. So that is, I think that's definitely something. Like, if you're not getting it, you need to get around some people that's going to give it to you because that's the only way you're going to consistently get better. Yes, definitely. So we want to thank you for listening to episode 42 of Brunch Culture. As always, you can check us out on our website at www.brunchculturebc.com. Follow us on Twitter at Brunch Culture, on Instagram at Brunch underscore culture, on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Brunch Culture. And make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and also sign up on our website for our uh, uh, email updates. And y'all continue to share us on social media. Post about the show. If you liked it, tell your friends on social media. Post it on Facebook. Post it on Twitter. Post it on Instagram. We want to get the word out. And we gonna, we're going to get the word out through you guys that faithfully listen to us every week. So we thank you and we appreciate you. And remember, at Brunch Culture, everything is up for discussion.